So hopefully this is working. But let me know if at any time you can hear. And uh, we do have hearing aids um, that's actually wired into this mic, and you can just wear the headphones, and they're just inside the closet. You'll see them there. Feel free at any point to get a pair. And then also just know there are extra cushions, blankets, benches. Um, so as the weeks go by and you're learning how to support your body so you can sit comfortably but with some kind of upright posture, you can get here a few minutes early like next week and see what cushion or bench or other supports make it easier for you to sit, especially for those of you who are sitting on the floor. But even people in the chairs might need some additional support with a flat cushion or something. And I'll talk more, not so much this week, but week two, I'll talk a little bit more about posture. But before I say anything else, let's just do a little practice so that even as I'm introducing the class, for those who haven't practiced before, you have a little bit more sense of what we're doing here these six weeks. So just without feeling you have to do anything, just allow the eyes to close to begin with at least. And simply notice the first thing that the mind is aware of, whatever that might be. In other words, noticing what the mind is knowing. Noticing what the heart is sensitive to. And see, can you leave it alone? Just let it be. Is it possible to be aware and to allow whatever the mind is aware of, just to allow it to be the way that it is? Is that possible? See if you can simply, if the mind can simply receive the different sensations now in the head and face. As if for the very first time, the mind is interested, for example, interested in the sensations of the hair, the weight of the hair on the head. Any sensations at the scalp, feel the air touching the ears, feel the brow, the forehead, aware of any tension in the face, around the eyes, for example, or around the mouth. So we're just checking, is it possible now for the attention to be open intimate with the sensations of the head and face. Aware without needing to judge or do anything, just to be open or sensitive, knowing simply that the head and face, the sensations here are like this now. Can this be okay? Feeling the throat and the whole neck and both shoulders, tops of the shoulders, down to the shoulder joints. 
And you're taking a few seconds and just practicing receiving the different sensations, ordinary sensations here. Letting the throat be, the neck, tops of the shoulders. Receiving all the different sensations in the right arm and hand. Feel the space of the underarm, the bend of the elbow. Feel the sleeve touching the skin of the arm, the right arm. The palm, the fingers, back of the hand. Same then on the left side, feeling the entirety of the left arm. So in the most simple way, relearning that it's possible for the mind to be open, to receive sensations, and just let them be. Let's feel the top part of the trunk, so the collarbones, feel the rib cage, the upper chest, upper back. Mid chest, feel the structure of the rib cage. Any sensations inside, heart, lungs. So we're learning to pay attention, but it's not about fixing or judging. It's just about being present. And then with the mid trunk, so the solar plexus, the kidneys, the base of the ribs. Just feel whatever you feel here. The movement of the breath here in the solar plexus. Taking your time and just let the awareness open, receive the different sensations down in the belly the lower back, feeling the structure of the pelvis, all the way down to the sits bones against the chair cushion. And we take a few more seconds and tune into the entire trunk, the torso, and letting it be. knowing that it's like this. Feeling both legs, thighs, just receiving the different sensations in the knees, the shins, Feeling the calves just as they are. Feeling the sensations in both feet, the toes, the bottoms of the feet, sides and tops of the feet. (coughs) 
And just for another minute or two, feel the whole body together. So it's not a thought about the body or a mental image of the body, but opening to this great diversity of sensation here in the body. See if it's possible to not need the different sensations to be different than they are right now. To relax and allow to be interested Not afraid of any sensations that are unpleasant or confusing, even those are included. You might even feel some simple gratitude in being this invitation to be present and just to allow the sensations to be the way they are. It's like a gift to not have to fix, not need to judge. And then it's interesting to check, like, can you stop being aware? Can you shut it off? So learning, sensing how awareness happens on its own Or you might say, awareness is just here, being aware, noticing. So for the last couple seconds, directly trusting this quality of the mind, this aspect of the mind that's aware, that knows. Understanding that knowing is happening. Can that be okay? And then open your eyes when you feel ready. Adjust your body as you need to. It's okay to stretch out your legs or whatever you need to to do to be comfortable. So once again, welcome everyone. Some of you I know, some of you are actually old timers here and then a lot of you are pretty new to the center. Maybe even half of you are brand new to the center. So I wanna welcome you. My name's Mark Nunberg and I'm the, what we call the guiding teacher here at Common Ground Meditation Center. Uh, My wife, Wynne Fricke and I started the center way back in 1993. So we've actually been around for a while and um, This center is in the insight meditation or Vipassana tradition, which is uh, in the lineage of Theravada Buddhism, which is the kind of Buddhism you find in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, Cambodia and Laos, that part of Asia. Sometimes called classical Buddhism in that it uh, more specifically focuses on the teachings of the historic Buddha. And interestingly, the Buddha, the way he taught, he was very psychological, wasn't really so interested in metaphysical truth, but 
in understanding the mind, using the mind to understand the mind for the purposes like stabilizing, calming, balancing the mind so the mind can be used to, in a sense, observe the mind because now it's stable, it's calm, it's clear. So we use that mind to observe the mind in order, what would you want to learn from the mind? What do you think the Buddha wanted us to do with the mind? What would be the most important thing? If we developed enough stability of awareness to be able to use awareness to observe the mind, the activity of the mind, what is it that we'd want to know by observing our mind? What would be the most important thing? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, Robert. Yeah, like what are the causes? Wouldn't you want to know like what are the causes for peace to arise in this mind? What are the causes for agitation to arise? So again, the Buddha's approach was very pragmatic, very, you could even say psychological, and it involved a number of different trainings, but basically they're all aimed at stabilizing or balancing the awareness, so that the awareness, the mindful awareness, can be used to observe the mind in order to better understand the causes for peace and the causes for agitation. And the underlying assumption, and you can just see whether this aligns with your experience, is that the causes for peace and the causes for suffering, stress, not our cat, not the weather, not the people that bug us in life or the politicians or the, you know, the various kinds of injustices that exist in our world. As challenging as those things are, the real cause is what our mind is doing about all those circumstances. So this is a, I don't expect people, you shouldn't just believe this, but it's definitely worth checking out. So one of the things we're going to check out by observing the mind, by stabilizing the awareness so we can observe the mind. And just so you know, I'll be using the word mind and heart interchangeably because in the way the Buddha understands the mind, the heart, it's, they're just different aspects of the same thing. So if I asked you, like, when you're suffering, how do you know you're suffering? Well, because... You know, you would say, well, my mind hurts or my heart hurts. Or when you're happy, how do you know you're happy? Well, I know it in my mind or I know it in my heart. So in the West, we kind of think mind here, heart here. But that's a habit. I'm not saying it's a bad habit. I'm just saying, you, you know, if you study anthropology or kind of human psychology, you realize in different places, they, they point different places when they talk about the heart or the mind. And now even Western medicine, you know, will tell you that in terms of, you know, normally we think about, well, well the brain's here. But now they, they find that the, sort of the nervous system is down in the gut and along the spine. It's not just underneath the skull. So we have this uh, interest in understanding the causes for suffering and then you're going to check out now in these six weeks, like you think the sound, the buzz of the refrigerator is the cause of your suffering. You're lying in bed and you're hearing that. It's like, oh. But 
The sound is just a sound. It may be an unpleasant sound, but it's just a sound. But the not liking of it is actually what's agitating the mind. Right? Where is that not liking happening? Here, in the heart, in the mind. That's where the not liking's happening. If you're really excited about something that's going to happen tomorrow and you really can't wait, you know, and you want it to happen now, or even now you want to just get home and have your lunch or dinner rather or your get into bed or whatever you, you're going to do when you get home, you really don't want to be here. So is the suffering, is the cause of your suffering having to be here or is it the not liking being here or the wanting to be home? And where's that wanting or that not liking happening in the mind? So the Buddha calls this not understanding the causes for peace and not understanding the causes for suffering. He calls that being an ordinary, worldly, and ignorant human being, right? Because here we are. I've had a mind. I don't know about you. I've had a heart, a mind right from the very beginning. But isn't it interesting that, you know, I'm, a, I'm 58, some of you are older, some of you are younger, but, you know, a lot of us didn't get interested in the fact that there's a mind here, a heart here, until we were well, well along in life. It's the most important thing. We should be training four-year-olds and above, like, hey, did, did you, have you noticed you have a mind, a heart, right? And, the relevant thing here is, honey, it turns out to be the cause for suffering and stress and all the evil in the world. And it's also the cause of all the beauty and goodness in the world. And where is that thing? Well, it's right at the center. Right? That's where the heart, that's where the mind is. It's right here at the center of things. And it will be really good if you start getting interested in it. I mean, it's really the most amazing thing. There's two really amazing things. One is... We all die, and somehow we think it only happens to other people. And even more amazing is we all have this thing that I'm calling a mind or a heart, and we always feel like, oh, I'll get interested in that later when I get my act together or when I you know, get out of debt or find a partner or get out of my relationship. Or It's like, yeah, we, I mean, intellectually we know it's important, to pay attention to the mind, to really get a sense of how the mind, the activity of the mind, the attitudes of the mind, the view or perspective of the mind, how that correlates with states of real agitation, despair, real heaviness, feeling quite burdened by life, how that correlates with the attitude of the mind, the qualities of the mi- that are there in the mind, and how states of happiness, lightness, peace, love, skill in terms of responding to the twists and turns of life, how that also correlates to the particular attitudes and qualities that are, that are there in the mind. It's like we, we're willing to, like, how many, how many hours, how much mental energy have I put into thinking that if only I could change my partner, I would be happy? Versus spending time, like, if only I could understand my mind a little bit better. You know? We want to change our boss, our parents, our partners, our friends, the politics. But the messiness of the world 
is just an expression of the cumulative messiness of all of our minds. So that's why we're here. Even if you don't know why you came, this is why you came. Because somehow, consciously or unconsciously, you intuited, you sensed that the mind is an important resource, right? One of the re- and the mind can do amazing things, but one of the most amazing things the mind can do is this sort of reflective knowing that we call mindful awareness, where it's like a mirror, like we're training a particular mental muscle, let's say, and we're training it to be this perfectly clear mirror that just sort of sits there right at the center of things. And what does that perfectly clear mirror do? It simply reflects back moment by moment by moment. Oh, it's like this now. Not liking is like this. Liking is like this. Being bored is like this. Judging is like this. Feeling happy is like this. Judging is like this. Analyzing is like this. Wondering is like this. Remembering is like this. Fantasizing is like this. Just like a mirror does. A mirror just doesn't have any opinion, doesn't have any agenda. A good mirror, it doesn't get tired. Right? You can do like all kinds of crazy things in front of that mirror. The mirror doesn't get less efficient the second or third or fourth hour. Right? It just keeps reflecting what's going on. Now the thing about that is that that mirror-like quality of the mind that I'm calling mindful awareness, it allows for this learning. What in this tradition we call insight, where the mind starts to have insight, learns things about the mind that it didn't know before. Like how the mind can get into peace, find its way into peace, and how the, fi- the mind finds its way to hell. You know, despairing, heavy, reactive, hateful, greedy states. Because the mirror-like kind of mind is directly feeding what we call wisdom. Wisdom, what is wisdom? In, in a Buddhist sense, wisdom is that part of the mind that is learning from cause and effect or from the conditional way things unfold. Oh, this is how I get into that hole. This is how I get into that dark, difficult, heavy space of mind. Oh, this is how the mind lightens up, has a more spacious, kind, forgiving attitude. Oh, this is how I got here. This is how the mind got here, right? Now, without that reflective mirror, that mirror reflecting back to wisdom, this is happening, now this is being known, now this is happening, this is happening. And then wisdom is just sort of like seeing the conditional unfolding, discerning or comprehending. Oh yeah, okay, this supports the arising of that. I mean, it's not rocket science, but you have to be aware for there to be any learning. Now, how many moments today were, was there this mental quality tracking, reflecting back what was going And it's different than just what we normally call being conscious. Like those of you who rode your bike or drove a car here tonight, you you were conscious, I'm assuming. (laughs) Because it's not easy to do. Soon, though, I guess it will be easier. We're going to have self-driving cars. 
in a few more years. But until then, you still have to be conscious to be driving a car or riding a bike. But you don't need to be mindfully aware. Have you noticed sometimes like from work, you get home, you're like you're there, you know you're safe, you walked in the door, but you don't remember driving home because you were lost in thought, you were you know, thinking about this, thinking about that, or maybe, hopefully not, but maybe you were texting or <laughs> talking on the phone or doing whatever. So there's a difference between being mindfully aware, being reflectively aware, so that as moment-to-moment experience unfolds, there's this clear, balanced, non-judging sense, okay, this is being known. This is what's arising in the mind and body and being felt in the mind and body. It's like this, and it's just this being known, and now this. Now, you don't need all that language. You know, the words I'm using to convey it to you now is just that. It's just to convey it to you. But that mirror-like knowing, what we call mindful awareness, is just doing that. And then the discerning part of the mind, another quality of the mind that discerns, that comprehends, that understands things as a conditional or lawful unfolding, it's got a lot of data to then better comprehend how things unfold. Again, in particular, how states of woe unfold and how states of happiness unfold. Because even if you don't realize it, that's what every human being is interested in. How to set in motion states of happiness, how to prevent and abandon states of unhappiness. So we'll be doing really two things these six weeks. One thing is we're, we're going to be understanding and practicing techniques that help to stabilize awareness. So basically, we're strengthening and cleaning up the mirror. This mental muscle that's capable of doing this job all day long. It doesn't get tired. When it's set in motion right, the mindful awareness, it just is happy. Like, you didn't have to work to hear the sound of the clap. Or, you know, when you put your hand down on your leg or touching something, the effort to know that that warmth or that contact, that pressure, everyone touching something, tune into that touching. You're just feeling some contact, right? Now, to be aware of that, to be reflectively aware, to know that touching is being known, that these sensations are being known, it's just a matter of not forgetting. It doesn't take a muscular effort to know the touching, but the mind has to keep remembering that it's here in order to know it. Does that make sense? So this is important because there's a habit of over-efforting mindfulness, trying too hard, and then you get frustrated and give up. So it's kind of a boom-bust syndrome that often happens, with, especially with new people really hard, but you're using an effort that actually is counterproductive. So then remember this point, like, honey, the effort is just remembering that this is being known. Like we'll be working, some of us at least, we'll be working with mindfulness of breathing. So you may think, oh, I've got to try to feel 
the breath coming in. But the sensations of breathing in, those sensations, are the mind is already sensitive to the body. There isn't anybody who has to do something to make the heart or mind sensitive to the body. Like, do you have to do something to be able to feel the sensations of the body? No. You just have to remember that the body's being felt. And when you forget, then you're, in a sense, unaware. But those sensations are still, the mind is still sensitive to those sensations. You're, in that moment, just choosing not to notice that experience. So the effort is in remembering to recognize the present moment or remembering to recognize what the mirror is reflecting right now, what this mirror-like quality of the mind is reflecting. It's always reflecting. It's always there. So it's not even quite right to say we're building the mirror or we're putting the mirror there. You know, maybe we're clearing, cleaning it off. But mostly what we're doing is we're understanding there is a mirror there and how to stay attentive to it. Okay, this is being known. This is being known. This is being known. And that's a phrase you might find useful. This is being known. And you can use a different word than this, like thinking is being known. That's what's, that's what's predominant. My mind is thinking. And now I'm recognizing the mirror that reflects that truth, that thinking is being known. And now hearing is being known. And now coolness is being known. And now maybe self-consciousness is being known. Right? And all that it takes to have the continuity of mindful awareness is remembering that the knowing mind, the mindful mind, the mirror, is always there knowing. And keep. Uh, it's almost like a new value or a new priority in the mind to have this reflectiveness. And then here's the interesting thing is, the wisdom just starts to build on its own. It's not so much that I become wise or you become wise or I've got to do something in order to become wise, to have insight, to understand better. It's like we're remembering that things are being known and the data just starts getting collected and naturally wisdom processes the, da- the data and starts to comprehend how everything's unfolding. How we go into hell, how we get to heaven. Over and over again, all day long. Anybody been in hell today for moments at least? Right? Anybody been in heaven today for a couple of moments? Hopefully. Right? And maybe purgatory? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, all the time. But even though that's been happening since the beginning, we haven't necessarily distilled, discerned, like, how that works. I mean, hopefully, just naturally, we've, got, we've learned a little bit since our teenage years about how to avoid, you know, some, some places of suffering, how to sustain and feed wholesome states, but not to the nth degree. And that's really where this practice is about. It's really like once we get the science or the art and science of stabilizing awareness and then using this stable awareness 
to reflect what's being known, what's being known, what's being known, so that the mind begins to be able to have deeper insight about how, what are the causes for suffering, what are the causes for happiness, and then things just start to work better. And then the, then the difficult thing is to keep going with your practice when things start to work better. Because just because they're working better, you want to be ready for even the worst possible circumstances, right? So you keep practicing even when your life is humming along. A lot of people take the class because things are difficult. Not everybody, of course. But would you take the class? Yeah, because even if things are going well for you, hopefully you understand it won't always be that way. You might get old. Or, you know, well, maybe you will get old. (laughs) (laughs) So any questions about what I've said thus far? And then we'll stretch our legs, and then I'll give you some more instruction. We'll do another meditation practice. But any questions about what I've said thus far come to mind? Good. So let's stand, stretch your legs so you'll be comfortable. And while we're standing, I'll give you some walking meditation instructions. Because the Buddha taught that we should, as you, I've sort of suggested already, we should be practicing in all four postures, lying down, walking, sitting, and standing. So, um, and this is especially important for people who aren't that comfortable sitting still. And if you're brand new to practice or if you have some Injury, you know, may not be easy even using a chair to sit still for 30 minutes, which would be ideal. Now, I know not everyone's going to be able to sit 30 minutes every day, but that's an ideal. But if it's 20 minutes, that's great. If all you can do is 10 minutes or 5 minutes, it'd be great for the purposes of the class to sit every day. So make a commitment before you go to bed, even if you have your PJs on, teeth brushed, Oh, yeah, taking that class. I kind of made this commitment. So get yourself in your meditation chair. Maybe designate where you're practicing in your home. Maybe it's a particular chair in an uncluttered corner. Maybe you want to go all out and get yourself the meditation shawl and the meditation cushions and have a beautiful little altar that kind of works for your heart, is inspiring or calming for you. But whatever you do, you have a place and you get into that place because you want to reinforce the intention, right? The intention to develop mindfulness, to be this reflectively aware person in order to fulfill your aspiration to become wiser about the causes for peace and the causes for suffering. You want to act on it every day, even if it is only for two minutes. It's better than, don't say, oh, I can only sit for a minute before I'm ready to crash, so I'm not going to do it. No, do it, because it makes a difference, even if it's a couple minutes. But if you can sit for 30 minutes, obviously you're going to learn a lot more. But for some of you, that will be hard. So you might have a hallway in your home, or maybe you have a luxurious home with a big room that you can walk back and forth, or until the weather turns, you can walk outside. You know, especially if it's a, relatively private place so you won't feel self-conscious. And, you know, in a perfect world, you'd have 15 to 25 feet and you'd stand at one end and you'd, you know, 
like you would when you're doing a city meditation, you're aware, yeah, I'm doing a formal practice now. I'm not just hanging out. And so you know, right, so the practice has started, standings like this. The experience of standing is being known. Knees may be a little bent. Holding your hands in a symmetrical way, it doesn't really matter too much. But there's always, both when we're sitting and standing or in any of the postures, there's a sense of composure. Right? And that's one of the simple advantages of being mindful. There's just a sense of wholeness or composure as we do whatever we're doing with mindful awareness. In the same way, when we're distracted, lost in thought, we look that way. You know, like we're not really there. So begin your practice with that sense of composure. Like, yeah, I'm standing. And there's this reflective awareness, this mindful awareness that the experience of standing is like this. And then with the standing practice, you're feeling the feet on the floor. right? And then the other sensations of the body are right there as well. But the predominant experience for most of us will be that simple experience of contact. Feet making contact with the floor. And then after a second or two, you just begin walking. If you have an, a nice long walking lane, it's often best to start at a normal walking pace. Right? And then slow down if that works, if it supports the continuity of awareness, mindful awareness. But don't feel like you have to walk slowly. Walk at a pace that supports the continuity of awareness. Now, I won't be able to walk at a normal pace because I just have a few steps. But then it's very simple. You just notice the placing. Placing, placing. And you can even use those labels in your mind. Placing. Standing, you notice the standing, standing is like this, turning is like this, the experience of turning, the physicality of turning is being known, standing is being known, placing, or you could use the word stepping, 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 standing is like this, standing is being known, turning, turning, Turning's being known. It's just this experience of turning and then standing. Right? Pretty simple. But our mind may like the idea of being simple and in the moment. But when you do it, you realize all intensity junkies. And after a few moments, maybe a couple laps, a mind is desperate. So you just start thinking about movies you've seen or problems in your relationship. or, But that's okay because so much of the work we're going to be doing is called starting over. right? And don't think that that's not the practice. Starting over is the practice. And think of it, this is uh, I think from Jack Kornfield, one of the teachers in this tradition. I think it was him who gave this example of a puppy. I, I've never had a puppy. But uh, you know, when you're training it not to pee on the carpet, you see, you kind of learn what that looks like when they're about to pee. You pick it up and you bring it to the newspaper or bring it outside, you know. Pick it up. And then wander, but you keep doing it. And you know, like if you have one of those cute puppies, you know you don't get angry at the puppy. It doesn't do any good to get frustrated or angry. You just have to hang in there. And the mind is a little bit like that. The mind right now, most of our minds, is in the habit of going wherever it wants, Right? 
we haven't disciplined it. We haven't trained it. And we're absolutely training the mind. A lot of people think that mindfulness meditation or awareness practice is just being okay with what is. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but to do that you need to train your mind to be in the present moment. There's no understanding what letting go is until your awareness is stable. And as long as your mind is all over the place and feels totally okay going down this tunnel, worrying about this, regurgitating some old pain, fantasizing about some future, that mind's not going to have any understanding. It's going to deepen wisdom. So the real discipline is when we notice the mind is getting lost in thought, we recognize that's not what we're doing now. So honey, let's come back. And generally, in the beginning, most people find it useful to have an anchor to come back to. So the practice we're going to do in a moment when we sit back down is mindfulness of breathing. It's the most common meditation practice in Buddhism. But the Buddha taught many, many, many different ways. But this works for almost everybody. There are a few exceptions. People who've had chronic breathing problems or asthma. There just might be a lot of emotional baggage around your breath. So just convert everything I say about the breath, or most of what I say about the breath, but maybe use hearing as your primary meditation anchor. You're not listening to a particular sound, but it's like an orchestra. You're hearing all the sounds as one thing. Does that make sense? And that's, that's a good meditation anchor for everybody. And everyone should feel free to experiment with hearing as a meditation anchor but I'm just giving it as a primary practice for people who might have a lot of charge around your breath. Now, that it's going to be difficult for almost everybody, mindfulness of breathing. So just because it's difficult doesn't mean you should go to hearing. But if you have this history of asthma or of other kind of breathing problem that just has created a lot of charge around it, then don't feel like you should use your breath. Okay? So we're going to sit down in a moment. And when we do... The breath is going to be our anchor, and then every time the mind wanders, we know what to do. We notice that it's wandering. We don't rush back to th- we don't rush the attention back to the breath. We take a few moments acknowledging that having been distracted is like this. Because in that moment we're not distracted. We're mindfully aware of the distraction. It's a world of difference. Like when you're getting really upset with somebody, and then all of a sudden you're aware that you're getting really hot and bothered. Now, is the awareness of being upset, upset? Is the awareness of it angry? No. The awareness that is that mirror. See, the mirror is never contaminated by what it's reflecting. And this you want to really confirm in your actual mind, in your heart, that you can be aware of the most despicable thought you're capable of thinking, the most intensely uh, wild or uneasy emotion that you're capable of feeling, and you'll see that the awareness of it, the part of the mind that's aware, oh, you really hate this person right now, that the awareness of it isn't the hate. It's an awareness that there is hate being known. There's anger being known. There's lust being known. There's 
you know, whatever, being known. So in the moment that, in a way, you're taking refuge in the knowing of it, you already have some space from whatever that distraction was. So again, sitting down, and we'll go through this, but I'm just giving you a chance to uh, not hurt your knees because some of you I know aren't so good sitting for long periods of time on the floor. So we're sitting, and we'll be watching the breath, feeling the breath, the sensations of breath going in and out, and the mind will wander because our thinking mind, that's its habit. There's lots of momentum. And then when we notice, as soon as we notice that the mind is lost in thought, then realize right then you're already back at the practice. So you can relax. You can actually be appreciative. Oh, yeah. Knowing distraction is like this. Knowing the thinking mind, the worrying mind, the planning mind, whatever kind of content that distraction is, knowing that is like this. And if there's some emotional charge with the thinking, like if you've been thinking for a minute or more, you've probably got, it probably has an emotional charge with the content of whatever it is you're thinking, right? So then you notice that the mind is thinking, and you notice, oh, it feels like this. Right? So that mirror reflects the content. Oh, yeah, it's a judging thought. And then there's maybe an emotional charge. Oh, yeah, it feels like this. Right in the body, the charge, that sort of energetic charge, the contraction feels like this. It's just that yucky feeling being known. Can this all be okay? You make peace with the mind that not now, but was distracted, and then you return the attention back to the body. You feel the next breath coming in, the next breath going out, and there are different ways to track the breath as your primary meditation object or the anchor of attention. Some people like to feel the movement of the abdominal wall as your primary anchor. You just feel that rising with the in-breath, the falling of the belly with the out-breath. Some people find it easier to feel the touching as the air flows in, touches the nostrils with the in-breath, of course, flowing out with the out-breath. Other people, it's different places. The belly and the nostrils are the two most common but everybody's sort of body physiology is slightly different. Wherever it's clear for you, then use that for your primary object. Okay, so let's sit in a comfortable way. Feel free to go to a chair if you've been sitting on the floor, but you don't find that very good for you. And like I mentioned, I'll talk a little bit more about how to sit next week. And we're going to be sitting for about 20 minutes. And it will give you a little bit of a sense how long that is and that you can definitely do that and live to tell it, talk about it. So for today, just sit in a way (coughs) that feels stable for you. Having the sense that the head is resting on top of the spine, ears are somewhat over the shoulders, nose in line with the navel. You might begin by just taking a couple of longer, deeper breaths, just to encourage the body to relax, to feel at home in the body. So take your time. 
filling the lungs to their capacity, emptying them fully, but in a slow and relaxed way. As if we have all the time in the world to breathe in and breathe out. And maybe one more time. Good, and then just let the breathing continue on its own. We're trusting the body to do the breathing now because the body knows how to breathe without conscious control. And let's all take a couple minutes and do a hearing-based meditation so we get a sense of that. So resting in the experience of hearing now, noticing that the mind is already sensitive to sounds that are coming and going. So in a very real sense, you're learning to relax into the sensitivity, the sounds. Hearing and letting the sounds be. And be interested in whatever it is that interrupts the continuity of awareness with hearing. What gets in the way? And when the mind wanders, as soon as possible, notice that the mind has wandered, it's thinking or whatever. Acknowledge, oh, it's like this. Can this be okay? And then feel the body and return to hearing. Hearing is like this now. Just sounds being known.
And then some of you may continue with mindfulness of hearing, but most of us now just feel the body sitting here just as it is. It's like a great ocean, diverse ocean of sensation here. Making peace with the way the body is, the sensations. And then in being intimate with the body sitting, noticing sensations of breathing in and noticing the sensations of breathing out. See if it's possible to be aware, to track the sensations of breathing in without needing to control or fix. And then of course, same with the breathing out. And every time the mind gets lost in thought, simply acknowledge the distraction as something being known when you can. Notice if there's a charge, an unpleasant or pleasant charge that goes with the distraction. In a sense, make peace. Oh, it's like this now. This is how it is. And then one more time, feel the body, feel the breath moving in the body and see if there can be a real intimacy, a real interest with the breathing process so you notice the very beginning of each inhalation and then moment by moment all the way to the end of the in-breath and notice the very beginning of the out-breath and moment by moment to the very end of the out-breath. So there is a continuity of awareness and a willingness to begin again and again. So we'll have about 10 minutes of silence now for you to practice on your own. And just do the best you can and be willing to begin again and again.
So the first task is to simply track the inhalation and then each exhalation from the beginning to the end. And as best you can to have the body and mind relax in the doing of this.
And as you feel ready, adjust your body, stretch your limbs if you need. One of the things you'll find um, during the class, the six weeks, is we learn quite a bit from each person who is willing to share a little bit about what happened in your in their meditation, both your practices at home, but then here at the center, asking questions, sharing successes, sharing things that seem to be in the way of your mindful awareness. So... Let's take a little bit of time. I want to save 10 minutes right at the end, but we have about nine or so minutes, which means we can hear from a couple folks, even during the sit tonight, either the first sit or this last one with mindfulness of breathing, what you learned, what was hard, questions you have about what I've said tonight. And we'll use this mic so we can hear each other, but it's a directional mic, so you have to point it right at your mouth like this, not up and down. So who would like to share a little bit about how that was? what you learned, what seemed to be in the way of continuity of awareness, what seemed to support the times when you could really track or be continuous with your mindful awareness. What comes to mind? Yeah, please, want to pass it back? Um, I've never really done meditation before. I've tried it before, and since high school I've been able to pay attention to my breathing because I was in choir and worked with that a lot and I I have asthma but it's not a big deal but I realized I actually have a really hard time blocking out sound and so I I um when we started the main part I started to do it with my breathing and realized if I went with the sound it actually allowed me to kind of let go the sound because I can't I have ADHD and I just cannot not hear any little sounds that happen. So that was really interesting to realize. And it it brings up a bigger point um, that you just naturally discovered on your own, which is that awareness is naturally non-exclusive. Now, we can direct our attention in an exclusive way. I'm just paying attention. I'm listening to the orchestra, but I'm really only paying attention to the strings. I don't care about the rest, or I'm just aware of hearing, or I'm just aware of sensation. But the kind of medi- the kind of awareness we're developing, there may be an object in the present moment that's in the forefront of attention, but we're not excluding everything on the periphery. And so we call this an inclusive awareness. And in a way... Where is everything being known? We talked about it. It's being known right here in the mind, in the heart. So even though we use the breath, we're not excluding the sensations of hearing or the experience of hearing and the other sensations in the body, even thinking. Don't make thinking the bad guy. Oh, I've got to stop my thinking. It's not about stopping thinking. It's about noticing when thinking is predominant, then notice it's predominant. When thinking's not predominant, just notice that it's there like or somebody left a radio on in the periphery, but I'm attending to the breathing in and the sensations of breathing out. Don't get upset that you're hearing the motorcycle or the blower blowing of the fan or whatever it might be. Thanks for sharing. 
Anybody else? A couple other folks like to share? Yeah, please. You want to pass it directly back? Did I, did I shut the mic off? Check. It's on the stem. Now? A little closer, maybe. Now? Yeah. Okay. Tonight I'm having a hard time staying awake, like not conscious, but not falling asleep awake. <laughs> it's such a wonderful, quiet time. I find myself dropping off. Yeah. It's actually a quite a, a serious obstacle, even for experienced meditators, because it does feel like when things chill out, settle down, that it would be a good time to go to sleep, right? <laughs> and sleeping's good. You know, it's a healing activity, a good restful sleep. But what we're interested in is learning. So if you really want to do this practice well, you should get enough sleep. So then when sleepiness arises in your meditation, then you know it's arising for another reason. Not that you actually need sleep, which may be the case for you, especially now at the end of a long day. But there's another kind of sleepiness that arises when the mind doesn't want to be present. So it just shuts itself off. I'm going to go unconscious because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. Just like some people get hyper because they don't really want to be in their skin. So they get hyper and they kind of do a bunch of different things because they're on some level afraid of settling, afraid of being sensitive, afraid of feeling what they feel. There are all kinds of defenses. So you have to discern like if you just haven't been getting enough sleep, then you know what the solution is. Get more sleep, which is chronic in our culture. A lot of people aren't getting enough sleep. But assuming you are getting enough sleep, then maybe practice with your eyes open. Sit up a little straighter. Eyes doesn't hurt. There's nothing wrong with practicing with your eyes open. Do standing instead of sitting meditation or walking instead of sitting meditation. And also one of the main instructions is make your mind do a little bit more in the meditation. So for example, if you ask your mind to mentally Uh, label or name what it's noticing, that work of having to label breathing in is being known. Now, not out loud you wouldn't do it, especially in a group, but silently in your mind you could say that, yeah, breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Ah, thinking. Thinking is being known. So to do that mental labeling takes effort and that effort enlivens the mind, wakes the mind up. It's interesting, it's a basic principle. Like I mentioned, we just learn a lot about the mind. So one of the basic principles is the cause for energy is making effort. Normally we think, I need energy in order to make effort. But you'll find, and this will make sense, if you look at your life, if you make effort, you get energized. If you just sit there on the couch, you lose energy, right? If you get up and do something, all of a sudden you realize you've got energy to do something. It's kind of surprising how that works. Same thing in meditation. If you're feeling sleepy and you don't think it's because you need sleep, then try to get interested in seeing more details of whatever your meditation object is. So as you're breathing in, really get interested in all the details, like that first moment of the breath coming in and each moment to the very last moment. And even that little gap, 
between the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath. So you're not missing anything. That will really help. Time for one more question or comment. Yeah, Frederick, please, in the back. You want to pass it straight back? Thanks. So I actually have a, a question. Can you hear me? Sure. So. Uh, so my question actually is related to what you just said about sleep. So I have kind of a complicated relationship with sleep, I'll say. Um, and and I was going to ask about, you talked about the four postures and meditating in those, kind of what your thoughts are about lying meditation, um, like, like in bed mm-hmm. beforehand. Um, like I might not fall asleep anyway, but... But it actually has sometimes helped me to fall asleep. So sure. I guess I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about like lying down. No, it's a, it's a really good posture for meditation, lying down. You like using the corpse pose, those of you who know yoga. So arms comfortably to the sides, legs comfortably ap- uh, apart. Some of you, um, it's not uncommon that it's uh, useful to lift the knees a little bit. So put a pillow under the knees. That can help if you have a little tension in in your lower back to elevate the knees a little bit, maybe a thin pillow under your head so that the spine feels in alignment. But the trouble is it's generally not good for much more than 10 minutes because the mind gets a little sleepy. Unless you have a lot of pain, a lot of chronic pain, then you don't need to worry about falling asleep. But if you don't have a lot of pain, then the mind starts to get mushy, maybe 15 minutes tops. Now, there are some people who can do it longer than that, but that's pretty pretty much the exception. Then your other point, Frederick, it does help to use the practice fall asleep, but you want to use a different, a specific technique so that it's not uh, what you use when you're doing your formal meditation practice. Because otherwise, you only, you'll always be getting sleepy in your meditation practice. So I'll give you an example. My wife um, listened for many years to Thich Nhat Hanh when she wanted to fall asleep and was having trouble. Some of you might recognize that name. He's a very well-known uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk and teacher, quite well-known in the West. He's written many books, great, wonderful teacher. Uh, and, um, and then we had this opportunity to do a three-week retreat with him in, at Plum Village in France. And as uh, soon as she started to hear his voice, because that's what her mind, I mean, our mind is a creature of habit. So if you associate meditation with falling asleep, so then what you're doing at night is not meditation. You're calming the mind. You're processing any trauma from the day, you know, any unfinished business from the day. You're uh, releasing tension in the body that might interrupt sleep. So you're sort of doing what we should all do in those first minutes when we're lying in bed. You're just doing it maybe in a more formal way with some of what you've learned from meditation, right? Because what are we learning in meditation? The causes for agitation and the causes for peace. Well, that information, that understanding, that wisdom is going to really serve us when even doing something practical like falling asleep at night, right? It helps us everywhere. Like when we're in a really difficult situation, it helps us not to escalate the situation because we know through our practice the causes for agitation and the causes for peace. So we stop throwing wood in the fire if we're about to explode with someone, right? Because we know where the wood is and where the fire is 
and how they should go together, right? And we know how to put water in the fire because we've been observing the mind and we know how fire gets going and how it gets fed and we know how fire gets put out. Same with lust, same with all of the afflictive emotional states. So it makes perfect sense that you'd want to practice, but you're practicing falling asleep, not meditating, right? And you're using what you've learned from meditation to let go of the causes of stress or agitation or anxiety or whatever it might be that keeps the mind awake at night, how to put that down. So you might use a particular technique. So if you use breathing, or you know, like one thing that I recommend for people is doing one of the loving kindness practices at night because it's it, it does a lot of emotional healing and it actually supports a very deep sleep. So we'll do a little on week five, a little of the loving kindness, but you can come here any Friday night, the first Friday only of the month. So coming up, I guess I forget what day that is, October 6th maybe. But anyway, the first Friday in October, 7 to 8.30, drop-in program. We always do the, Buddha's, uh, the Buddhist practices on compassion and kindness and joy and equanimity. It's a whole set of practices that are really essential to learn. And we do them all the time, but formally they're taught and, and uh, developed during that monthly gathering. And everyone's invited to that. But we'll do a little during week five of that practice. Good. Let's leave it here. I wanted to cover a couple nuts and bolts before we end. Um, the first thing is there are about eight handouts for this class. So this will challenge some of you, but here's how you get them. Go to our website, commongroundmeditation.org. And when you look at the main menus at the top of the page, you'll see, I think, the second one over. The first one is maybe like About Us and then Programs. You click Programs and then look under Classes or, yeah, Classes, maybe Courses and Classes. Click that and look for this class, Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation. When you see the little blurb for this class, embedded in that blurb will be a link to, we call it the Intro web page or something like that. And you'll see the recordings from previous class that I taught. So for example, if you're out of town on business during week three, you can listen to week three. Or if you're sick or your kid's sick and you can't come on one week, then you can listen there. And then also you'll see the link to all the handouts right there on that web page. And it'd be good to take a look at those handouts. So there's a handout for each week. There's a handout on walking meditation practice. There's a handout on the loving kindness practices. There's also a handout on how the center works. And you probably notice we don't charge for any of the programs here, even our residential retreats. We, for the last uh, almost 25 years, have been offering everything freely. And then, of course, the building, the livelihood of the teachers, the office staff. We have three office staff. All of that comes from people's free donations. And we just ask that people give in a way that makes you happy to give. So you have to reflect. If you don't give in any way, even your good wishes or of appreciation, that stinginess doesn't feel good. If you give too much and you can't take care of your other responsibilities in your life, that's not going to feel good either. Everyone's situation is different. It's not really 
up to the organization to give suggested donations because everybody's situation is different. And so we don't, you know, we do keep track so that we can give you a tax letter at the end of the year. So if you want to leave cash, but you do want that letter to reflect your donations, then you have to put your cash in a little white envelope, which is underneath the donation bowl in the lobby, and put your name and your address there. And just make sure if you leave a check that your address is correct. And then we track gifts, and you'll get a letter at the end of the year. And then uh, you can also do credit card. We have an uh, iPad out on the shelf under the bulletin board. And uh, there's an instruction manual there, but it's pretty straightforward. But just ask me if you have any questions about that. And you can always go to the website, and there's places, you know, we just use PayPal. And you could just do that online, too. So any way you want to give, any time you want to give, there's no right or wrong way to do it. If you have questions, just see me. And there is a, one of the handouts is ex- just explains a little bit more how the center operates. You might also notice on the table in the lobby, we just got out the annual letter from the treasurer. It just gives you a little background on the finances of the organization. If you're interested, don't feel like you have to take that. So that's that piece. Handouts, donations. Oh, uh, you notice the upstairs gets pretty crowded. So you can come in the south door. So on 26th Street, the south side of the building, there's a door, and it goes right down the staircase to the basement where we have lots of space for coats, and shoes, and then you just come up. Because you'll see tonight, as you all go out that main entrance, it's a little zooey there. So if some of you come down the basement stairs into the basement, it just distributes the folks in a nice way. So keep that in mind next Tuesday. And then the last thing I want to say is, it's very common, even if you had a really sort of good sense that, oh yeah, this practice will be really good for me, Come next Tuesday afternoon, early Tuesday evening. You know, I'm a little tired. I think he's going to be teaching that in the winter, you know. (laughs) Or I'll just listen to the talks online because he said all the talks are there. Why bother going in? It's just like, it's just so easy to put it off. So if you sense intuitively that this would be a good thing for you, and it will be, then you got to stick it out because six weeks is hardly enough time to even get enough of a taste to know that you want to develop this practice for the rest of your life. And that's really the way to think about it. This is not a short-term thing. I mean, it's a short-term thing to get enough of a taste to know that we want to make it part of our life. And the other thing is, if you're really going to want to do it, you're going to need to know people who are also into it because it's Countercultural, the culture is all about distraction and getting absorbed into this and uh, absorbed into that. It's not about being right in the middle. It's not about being awake. It's not about being sensitive. It's not about being clearly aware. So, this is an opportunity to connect. I mean, there are other Buddhist centers in town, really good ones that you could connect with, but you're going to need some community at least a good friend who's into the practice as much as you are, if you're going to have a chance <coughs> excuse me, to really develop it. So don't be surprised by your resistance next Tuesday. Just notice it with mindfulness. Oh yeah, there's resistance. It feels like this. I know resistance. I don't, just because there's, I mean, there's a resistance to a lot of good things, but we do them anyway because they're good things. 
But if you don't know there's resistance, you're going to think the resistance is you. I don't want to go. No, no, it's not that you don't want to go. It's just that there's this resistance being known. Isn't that the truth? It's just this yucky feeling being known. So then you feel that and you get in your car or bike or bus and you come. Give it six weeks. See what you learn. So have a good week, everyone. See you next Tuesday night, I hope. Now, if you have a few moments, all of these folding chairs need to go down the stairs to the right and to the right and this first row of folding chairs. So if you would be willing, bring it down. And if you want to come early next week and help us, bring them up. That would be nice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.